Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit fightradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Judy Mandel, and we will be talking about her new book, White Flag, a Memoir. Raising the white flag is a universal symbol of surrender, a symbol of the hope that our vulnerability will be shielded from further harm and that we can finally lay down our burden. What separates those who summon the inner strength to ask for help from those who can never find, can never unfurl their banner? These are the questions that haunt Judy Mandel in her searingly honest memoir about lost and addict, about loss and addiction. White Flag is the further exploration of the author's family so movingly portrayed in her previous New York Times bestselling memoir, Replacement Child. Judy Mandel is a former reporter and marketing executive, holds an MFA in creative writing from Stony Brook University. Her first book was the New York Times bestseller, Replacement Child. She is the co-founder of the Replacement Child Forum, and a portion of this book's proceeds will be donated to Magnolia New Beginnings, Inc., an organization that advocates for those living with substance abuse disorder, their families and loved ones. For more information, you can visit Judy's website, which is judymandel.com, and that's J-U-D-Y-N-A-N-D-E-L.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Judy to the show. Good day, Judy. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure, and, and um, it's your your newest book is is ve- it is riveting. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those that uh, okay. excuse me that uh, is, is a page turner. So um, now, White Flag is the second memoir, and as I mentioned um, in the introduction, your book Replacement Child was was the first. So how are these two books connected? Well, um, they're connected by my family, of course. Uh, the first book, Replacement Child, features the uh, talks about the plane crash in 1952 that uh, killed one of my sisters and badly injured my other sister, Linda, when she was two years old. That sister is the mother of Cheryl, who is um, the focus of White Flag. Yes, yeah. and so... When one of the things that I'm um, just kind of awestruck by is, is memoirs. You know, the, the fact that someone would um, put out to the public some of the most um, personal and trying times um, for for everyone to read and, and comment. And so, can you tell us, you know, you know why or, or you know why you you put these memoirs out there and, and you know did it take any 
particular um, type of strength kind of to to open up to the world? Well, this this was a very difficult um, book for me to write, um, partly because, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a spoiler alert, I guess, is that it's not a recovery book. Um, my niece mm-hmm. did pass away from an overdose. Um, so I was in the middle of grief while I was writing this, and um, I think many writers will tell you that, that they write because they feel like they need to write something, a certain thing, and to understand... For me, it's to understand myself and to understand what I went through and, and where it and examined. It's an examined life. Um, and I think that's the crux of, uh, of memoir. It's, it's never an easy task for anybody. Um, we, all, we all worry about our families and what they're going to say and what they're going to, you know, what they won't agree with. And there's just an understanding, I think, that you have to have that this is, your story and your perception, and others might have seen it differently. And I think that's one of yeah. the hurdles that memoir writers have to get over to even start writing. Um, so that's, yeah. yeah it's, 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 I would say it's, it's uh, you know, one, of the, one of the things that I've noticed throughout the years when I've had uh, authors who have written um, memoirs is that, you know, that reaction from – people who are um, kind of in in your life, you know, and, and just not being able to um, gauge what kind of reaction there may be. Now, and I, I've had some folks who have kind of waited to write their memoir to, you know, for most of the people who might um, kind of object to some of the information are, are past or, or, you know, or won't be as, um, and, and sometimes, you know, they will, authors will, you know, try and, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say shift the focus, but kind of make it so that it's not as easily identifiable, you know, who's going through struggles and, mm-hmm. and not to out anyone, you know, with struggles. So that can be a, a, a real challenge as well. Right, right. And often it helps to send you know, if there's a piece in it that that reflects on you know a certain person, especially in your family, I think it helps to send them a copy before it is published, so that they're not um, surprised by it. And yeah, and I try to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. So now, white flag, and as I mentioned in the beginning, you know that it's a kind of a universal symbol of, of surrender, um, and it is a metaphor that you use throughout your book. So can you tell us, you know, why you chose that particular symbolism for this book? Well, the first the first thing that came up for me was when my niece was homeless, and uh, it was a very cold winter in Louisville, Kentucky, which was unusual. Um, the only way she found a bed to sleep in um, was when the shelters, what they call, had a white flag um, event or raise their white flag saying that anyone can come in and uh, no matter if they had a bed or not so that they wouldn't be mm-hmm. out on the street. And that's the way that she she did find a bed that, you know, that last winter. So there was there was that piece. And then there were, as I did a little more reading and a great deal of research for this book, um, I realized that the person with substance use disorder needs to raise their own white flag 
in surrender that they need help, that they can't do it by themselves. That, uh, and that's, you know, something that is, I think, an important ingredient for recovery. The, the third part, and there's a threefold, a threefold reason was that I needed to raise my own white flag, you know, in the midst of this, um, to what I could and couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. And in, in your book, you, yeah, actually towards the end of the book, you, you, um, you write a letter to Cheryl and indicate, and, and questioning whether or not you felt you did enough. You know, and I think that particular um, feeling is common among um, people who, you know, survive, you know, um, someone who um, doesn't from addiction. So, I mean, it seems that it's, uh, you know, that's the, the book, as well as talking about Cheryl, but it also is just as much for the people who survive and, and, um, are coping with a family member who has a uh, substance issue. Um, so now, with with the um, the relationship with, with you and Cheryl, can you tell us a little bit? Well, let, let's go back a, a little bit. Now, with with the, start with the crash because you know the crash is is um, important um, to both books. So can you tell us um, mm-hmm. a bit about about that, what, you know, that happened in the 60s, but can you tell us a little bit about about uh, about that event? Sure. This was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, it was uh, between, um, it was like eight weeks of a, to- a period of time, and there were three plane crashes. Um, and, you know, it's important to know, I think, that it was, this was, Elizabeth is like three miles from Newark Airport. And... So it, it was a phenomenon that was that was happening. This was the second of the plane crashes, and it crashed into my parents' building. They lived in an apartment over over a candy store at that time, and it and it sliced off the top of the building and uh, you know dumped jet fuel into their house into their apartment. Um, my mother, I I always feel my mother was a hero because she saved three people that day. She saved her mother who lived with her. Uh, she saved a friend of my sister Donna's, who was about seven years old, and she saved my sister Linda, who was two years old, by rolling her down the stairs in a blanket. And, um, you know, at that point she had to go run down after her to open the door, and someone had just been passing by and grabbed her and said, you can't go back in there, and she wanted to go back in to save Donna. But as she turned around, the floor actually collapsed in that building. So there really was no chance. And I, I think that is something that haunted my mother for forever. Um, my sister Linda, the, the baby that she rescued, was burned very badly. Eighty percent of her body, they said, was third-degree burns. It was the miracle that she really did survive. So she's the mother of Cheryl, you know, in White Flag. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing more about what I know about stress and um, carrying a, a baby in utero, um, I realized that um, that stress had to transfer to Cheryl. Um, and over the years, um, my sister Linda went, went through a lot of trauma. So it's the transgenerational trauma that I talk about 
in White's flag that can carry through generations. So there was um, the research that I did about generations of Holocaust survivors that carries through in different ways for those generations. So that's that's a a little synopsis, I think, of what that accident was in the 50s and how it carries through. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Excuse me. We don't, um, times when we're, or people are experiencing trauma, um, you know, many times the root is, you know, in the past. I mean, generationally past. Um, that, you know, that has the case. And, and, um, I, I believe that it, it, it's, you know, sometimes because of that, uh, pattern, that it sometimes can be difficult to differentiate, you know, what is, you know, generational trauma versus, you know, individually experienced trauma. Um, so Absolutely. That, uh, and, Absolutely and, right. <laughs> yeah, that makes it harder to help once you, if you can't identify where the source of it is. Well, it's part of who we are. I, I think that's the important yeah. piece of it. And I think acknowledging yeah. it and being aware of it is the first step. Um, in Cheryl's case, there was additional. She had um, that uh, depression. Um, there was sexual abuse in her childhood. Uh, there were there were a lot of factors, and I think that was what I discovered um, to be, you know, the most om- almost overwhelming is the complexity of substance use disorder. It's not just one thing, and it's not the same thing for everyone. It's it's different. And, you know, add that to the change in your brain chemistry when you use substances. And, you know, it needs to be addressed in different levels. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, in reading the book, it appeared that there were, that Linda's um, burns and and the way that affected her, that there was a, a lot of, um, kind of silence or there were ways that you, that the family, um, dealt with it by trying to gloss over or not, you know, give attention to, to the burns. So can you tell us a, a bit about how the family unit, um, dealt with the, the topic of of, Linda, of Linda's injuries. Well, I think this is this is kind of a also a universal thing in in many families is that there's a silence about the things that are most pressing and and most there in their face that they're facing, and you know a, a silence can be a kind of trauma in the family, and I think that white flag is about that as much as anything that we didn't talk about it. I didn't know so much about the accident until I really started writing Replacement Child. I didn't know what my sister was going through. She hid a lot of things from me. She didn't want to um, burden me. Nobody, you know, I was the the, uh, the youngest in the family. I was born after this accident. Um, so there was a kind of a bubble around me <laughs> of protection mm-hmm. of, you know, not talking about things. And... And I thought, and a sign of the time, you know, in that period of time, people didn't talk about things as much. But some families, there was this kind of silence. And in my family, you know, we didn't talk about 
um, what my sister might be going through, even socially, because she, you know, she was visibly burned. Um, so that's difficult for a young girl growing up. Absolutely. There was no, um, she wasn't sent for counseling. I wasn't sent for counseling. I was, I was kind of plunged into the role of protector, even as the younger sister. Um, yeah. we didn't talk about, uh, we didn't talk about the date of this accident. We didn't talk about, I didn't know it until I started researching. I didn't know my sister Donna's birthday, <laughs> even, which wow. was strange when I found out. <laughs> It was just a, like I say, a bubble of protection that doesn't help. It doesn't help to not talk about things. You know, it, uh, when you have a deceased sibling, they automatically become perfect, which is also what happened, of course, but because there's no way for them to have done anything wrong. So you've got this angel right. child kind of, you know, hovering over the family as well. Um so yeah, the silence. I think people people reading this book will relate to that. They'll see, oh yeah, we never talked about you know Uncle Joe or uh, you know, yeah whoever it was in the family. Yeah, well, it's funny that you should say that. I have an Uncle Joe who went to prison. Oh, I'm sorry. But but. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean that particular topic when the family get together after he got out wasn't very uh, top of the mind, or people people didn't talk about it. But so I mean, it's, right. it's exactly what you're saying. And um, and for newer additions to the greater family unit, you know, not talking about you know, such critical kinds of events that, that happened in life really, um, really, I think, supports, for those who don't know, supports the idea that the best route is one of, of, of ignorance in the sense of not wanting to know and not talking about it. And, and if you don't talk about it, it makes it seem less real as, as something that happened. Right. Right, right, and and really, yeah. that's an illusion that it, that it makes it easier. It's it makes it easier maybe yeah. at the moment, but certainly not in the long run. Um, but it is the easier route. You know, it's not it, it it's hard to dive into these things. It's not it's not yeah. an easy thing, and many people don't do it. Many people don't want to do yeah. it, which uh, is understandable yeah. as well. It, it is, you know, and. And I think, you know, with, with books like yours that dive into the history and, and the in relationships and, and just how people are affected by by silence or by talking about issues and, and particularly um, substance uh, use disorder, you know, the idea of, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to um, – to correct or, or to kind of um, get through that, you know, without help is a, is a challenge. I, I don't think people can get through it without help. I mean, so, yeah. I, there might be some people who who have and, and say they can, but I, I think people need help, whether it's with, you know, medically assisted treatment now, you know, what they call MAT with uh, the box zone or, you know, um, also – to, to be saved and have, you know, if, if they had given yeah. my niece 
um, naloxone at the scene, she may have been saved. I'm not, I don't know that, but I know they didn't do right. it. And uh, hmm. I don't know why they didn't do it. Yeah. I don't know why. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the mysteries. Those unanswered questions. Yeah, because, you know, even as you're going through the process of discovery, um, you find, you know, things that um, you, you have some questions answered, but then again, there can be so many more questions um, arise out of, out of knowledge. Um, right, now, right. Tell us, and one of the reasons that was Wrote this book is so that people see the see the complexities of it, and you know realize how many tentacles there are to substance use disorder, and that it can't just be stop using that substance. That does does not seem yeah. to work. Um, it needs to be addressed. You know, if there are like they're calling it dual diagnosis treatment now, um, where if somebody is suffering from you know a depression that has led them to self medicating, that's you know the first issue to to resolve. Mm -hmm. So there's there yeah. are many many ways to to look at this. Um, and I was going to say one of the reasons that I that I wrote this also is I have a son, and he has now now I have a grandson, and you know you want them to be aware of where they came from, and you know what's right. what's maybe impacted you know their chemical you know formula, and and to be, to be aware I think is is, uh, helps you. Oh, yeah, very much so. You know, and the idea that, you know, trauma can be um, transferred or, or, or can, uh, you know, go beyond generations. It can be transferred or can be experienced, you know, through various generations. You know, it, it seems that only when you get to the point of, you know, identifying, you know, those those core issues, identifying, you know, maybe the source of the trauma, that only then can the cycle or, or the, you know, continuation of, of trauma stop. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's the kind of the key to, to make sure that, like, your, your son or your grandson, you know, isn't burdened. With with that kind of problem, right, right, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no guarantee, yeah. so, but it. I think no. this is this is yeah. the step I can take. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there aren't any guarantees, but but you're right. You know, when it gets down to the the question of did I do enough, or you know, you know, you can. You want to be at the point where you said yes to yourself. Yes, I've, I've done. I did what I could. Knowing what I knew, you know, and and um, and kind of just accepting, you know, that that's the case, rather than kind of blaming or, or guilt or shame. You know, those are you know common, I think, emotions that might get transferred if it's not identified. And I think that's common for for any close death in your family that you always think of the things you could have done. Um, you know, yeah. even my my mother who died in you know almost at ninety. I still, you know, thought of, well, maybe I should have done this. Maybe that would have been. Maybe I should have, yeah. you know, helped in this way. Yeah. So it's, um, it's not just with substance use disorder. I, I believe it's grief yeah. that you're always second guessing yeah. your actions. Or yeah, I, I've heard that from many people. Or inaction. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Or inaction. I mean, is, right. Yeah. yeah. 
Very much so. So now, tell us um, about what led you know. Now, Cheryl had been kind of separated from the family, um, you know, by, by choice, you know, her choice. Um, and so can you tell us what was the um, what, what was the impetus for you to um, connect with Cheryl? And tell us about that, that discovery of when you found out where she was. Well, it was, uh, you know, as I write in the book, it was actually my sister Linda's birthday that I, I, I wanted to reach out and try to find Cheryl again. I had tried to. It was a two-year period that I didn't, I didn't know where she was. Nobody had been in touch with her. She hadn't been in touch with me or her sister who's, you know, in Florida. Um, so I didn't know where she was. And I typed her name in on a whim, actually, into, you know, Google. And found mm-hmm. her in um, an Ohio prison. I found a mug shop, which was shocking, but also relieving because I thought she might be dead. I knew there was, mm-hmm. I knew that you know there was substance use disorder, um, and I intuited after after her mother's death um, that that was a trigger for her, um, a relapse for her. And so finding her yeah. in the Ohio prison, I thought, oh my God, at least she's she's alive. And I wrote to her in the prison, and, and that started our correspondence for, you know, a good part of a year that she was uh, still sentenced. Yeah. And after that, yeah, she got out. Yeah. You you include in your book those those letters between you two. Um, some of them. Can you tell yeah, us, some of them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can you tell us about um, about about that, you know, because, I mean, there will probably be people listening who will have um, family members who are in jail. And so can you tell us yeah. um, just ab- about um, about that process, you know, and, and, you know, what did you, what did you discover about um, the importance of, of letters in, in communication with Cheryl? Well, I, I, I did happen to speak to a, a friend who was a social worker who had dealt with people in prison. It was foreign to me. I had never. And she said, mm-hmm. you know, it's important, first of all, that you put money in the commissary. She said, do that. Because I was hesitant to do that. I didn't know if that was the right thing to do. And she said, put money in the commissary because at least it shows them that someone on the outside cares about them. And they can get things, you know, like um, paper to write letters and um, shampoo and you know, you know, soda and you know, little little treat type of things that make that make their stay more human for them. So I did that. Um, I found that uh, the prison was uh, the prison is, was the the system was horrible. Um, you know, they charge mm-hmm. you to put money in. They charge you to take money out. They charge you, they charge you to set up a phone conversation. They charge you to do a, you know the video thing. Um, so it was ridiculously, um, you know, it was, it was horrible the way that, the way it's set up, but it was important and writing the letters was important and, and being able to accept the phone calls was important. You know, I think she, she, she really did feel like there was somebody on the outside that loved her, which was very true. You know, I tried to be supportive. I could see in her letters that she was very, um, self-deprecating, you know, she really felt mm-hmm. a worthlessness 
and I tried to dispel that as best I could. Um, you know, for yeah. instance, I kept her books because she was such a voracious reader. So I, I tried to keep up with her reading, which was difficult because she just read them so quickly. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and then she was transferred to another prison, which would not allow me to send books, which I was horrified at that. It was like the only, you know, lifeline that she had was was to be able to get these books. And uh, I wrote a scathing letter to to the warden there, and never heard back. Um, wow. But I, I couldn't imagine why they wouldn't accept books. Well, now um, you, you indicated the one that's not good. Yeah. Well, you indicated the one that did. That the books also had to come from a third party vendor, you know. Um, which, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, is, it had to. Well, still. I kind of understand that. You know, they're afraid something is going to be yeah. hidden in the binding or um, hmm. that kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, I kind of understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or oh, oh, code. <laughs> code in the book or something. Like code, that. yes. <laughs> right, right. You never know. Oh, yeah. Um, now, uh, we're going to take a break in, in, in just a minute or so, but um, can you – I understand that, you know, uh, deceit, um, lying, um, played a, a big role in, in your relationship with Cheryl, and, and that that's a, a hallmark uh, characteristic of, of, of addiction. So tell us, you know, uh, you know the, the role that it played, you know, for you in, in that, um, you know, because I think – you know, I mean, I've been around, you know, people who have had, you know, a substance use uh, disorder. And, you know, and there is uh, just, just a lot of lying <laughs> that, that kind of goes on. Mm. And, and so, so can you tell us about your experience with it, with Cheryl, and, and then how, how, did you, um, how did you deal with that? Well, you know, there's still that person that you love, and and so you want to believe them, and you want to. I wanted to believe that she, you know, was not using drugs when she told me she wasn't. I wanted to believe she was going on the interviews for jobs that she told me about, mm-hmm. and you know, looking for work, looking for a place to live. That was our that was our goal, you know, when she was out of prison and was actually in trouble um, at the end, and. And so, you know, it, it almost works against you because you want to believe them, but there's an underlying feeling that you can't. And, mm-hmm. you know, I probably, to the other side of believing her, um, mm-hmm. even while taking some precautions of, you know, not directly sending her cash, you know, to go out and buy drugs. Right. Um, so it's, it's a fine line. I think people have to protect themselves. And, you know, you have to... Try to try to believe them, but whatever lies they're telling you, they feel is for their survival. And you know, when you're up against that, you can you can see why they're lying to you. They they feel like they will die if they don't if they don't get this drug. Um, and so, you know, sifting through the lies is is difficult. And I I actually didn't find out all the lies until after she was passed away. Um, yeah. Which was another another unearthing. <laughs> I am sure. I am sure. Well, we're going to take just a, a quick uh, ninety second outbreak, and then when we come back, um, I want to uh, explore. You know, what were maybe some warning signs? 
that, that you may have had um, about Cheryl's addiction that, that were missed, okay? Okay. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Judy L. Mandel, and we're talking about her newest book, White Flag, a Memoir. And again, you can find out more about Judy and her books, um, this one as well as A Replacement Child, by visiting her website, which is judymandel.com, and that's J-U-D-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Judy. Hi. Okay, great. So um, tell us about, um, you know, the idea of warning signs, you know, when it comes to addiction. You know, what were what what were some of them that that you you saw that you noticed and you were aware of, and then maybe some that you missed. Well, you know, I would have known a lot more um, had my sister been telling me more of what was going on because we we lived mm-hmm. far apart. So there were things that I I didn't know about. I didn't know um, that she had been to rehab several times. Um, in the past, I, so there were, there were many things that were kind of that silence again, you know, kind of carried through from mm-hmm. from our immediate family down to my sister and I. Um, so I didn't know about that. I knew there was uh, there were some incidents, you know, with uh, there was a. I know my my parents, her grandparents, had bought her a violin because um, she really wanted to learn to play the violin, and then they found out she had sold it to to buy drugs. That was mm-hmm. that was she was very young at that point. I think she was like you know thirteen or fourteen, very young. Um, so that was definitely you know a sign. Later on, you know there were times when I I would have thought she would have been with the family for events, um, and she was nowhere, and I didn't know what had happened to her, or she wouldn't show up for something that um, that she was meant to be at. Um, one of those things was uh, was a wedding, you know, that uh, she was supposed to come to. She wasn't there, so you know, disappearing was was definitely definitely a sign later on. I mean, she she did disappear into books. 
which is usually, mm. I think, a great mm-hmm. sign that people disappear into books. Um, but it's also an escape. And, yeah. you know, I remember my sister saying, you know, that she, she was a little concerned about the fact that that's what she did mostly. Um, mm. And I, I, so I don't, I did not see, you know, these blatant signs as she was growing up, to be honest. Um, it was pretty, pretty undercurrent. And uh, yeah. the disappearing and, you know, the non-communication, I think, are definitely signs for people to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, now, when you started to do the research um, and, and to, you know, elements that influence addiction, um, can you tell us maybe something that you found surprising um, when you um, were doing the, the um, investigation, the research, that maybe people sure. don't know about? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you know, some of the reading that I did was absolutely eye-opening. I I read uh, Gabor Mate's book, um, um, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost, you know, which he he's worked with uh, addicts for decades. And just understanding that uh, most people with substance use disorder have trauma in their background. That it, he, he says it's 90%, at least, or 99%, I think is what he said. And, you know, the trauma aspect was surprising to me. Also, um, the effect of depression and stress on people's uh, physiological makeup. And even, as I said, in utero, you know, as all of your organs are developing, um, there's an abundance of cortisol when there's uh, stress going on that does affect the formation of all of your organs, including your brain. That was very surprising to me. Um, the brain chemistry piece um, of how how the brain does change when drugs are involved was eye-opening to me. You know, I remember one metaphor that meant a lot to me was envisioning sterile careening down a hill in a car and trying to put the brakes on and the brakes don't work. And that mm. kind of said it to me why she, she can't stop. She It's not that she doesn't want to stop. It's that that part of her brain is not it's not working well, or it's not functioning at all. So you know the things that stop us from from doing you know things that hurt us, um, that part was was not functional. And yeah. you know understanding that it relieves some of the the stigma of substance use disorder. It, it, knowing that there are these physiological changes, I think really does you know, relieves the stigma around it. And I think the shame and the stigma are big pieces of what stops people from recovery. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, once you get an understanding of the chemistry, the brain chemistry involved, um, it, it, it gives you a, a sense that, um, it's something that can be corrected, that, that it can be adjusted, you know, and that, um, you know, there are, are ways of, um, of addressing the situation that, that kind of take it away from that, that emotional, you know, why can't you stop? You know, you should be able to stop. Everybody, right, you know, right. that, that, that 
the whole kind of thing like that, that um, it, it, for, for people who are coping with that, like, like that, using that, that metaphor of going down the hill without a break, you know, if they recognize that, oh, my God, you know, I need break fluid, <laughs> you know, kind of, to be able to, yeah. you know, get this to work right. Yeah, and, you know, brake fluid might be medical assistive treatment. So, you know, that might, be, that might be what helps them to do that, yeah, along yeah. with counseling. And, you know, I, I also realize, you know, the social services help is essential also, especially people getting out of prison. Um, you know, they need to rebuild their lives, and it's almost impossible. It's very difficult yeah. to find a job, yeah. to find even a I, – I couldn't find a bank that would give my niece, you know, an account. Because she had a phone wow. on her record, they absolutely would no, not yeah. do it. Um, which wow. you can imagine how that affects your life. Without having a, you know, she wasn't making much money at her small job she could get. But where do you put but it? But still, <laughs> really? anyway. I know. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very yeah, that, that is that is that is crazy, and it's um, to me, I'm amazed at how many. Um, institutionalized kinds of um, beliefs or restrictions um, can really hamper, you know, someone who wants to reform and, you know, wants to be, you know, a contributor to society. And right. But, but, but right. we don't make it easy for, for those folks. No. We don't make yeah. it easy. And, and lately we're making it harder, it seems. Yeah. I know, I know. It's just we're certainly heading in the wrong direction in some of these cases, but we're also, you know, making mm. advances in understanding, you know, you know what some of the yeah. difficulties are. I mean, there's also and trying to right. I mean, there are more treatments for, especially for trauma. Um, you know, some other uh, research that I did was with uh, Bethel uh, Vanderkolk. He has, you know, wealth of um, information and um, talks about different treatments for trauma, which. Um, is an underlying, you know, factor in substance use disorder. Right. Yeah. So that's, you know, also yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and sometimes, like we talked about, talking about being generational, that, you know, when it comes time to addressing that trauma, it, it's for, for the child whose trauma maybe has been passed on from a parent's trauma, um, that, you know, in order to, for the child to be able to um, cope with, integrate, you know, that particular um, trauma, you know, in, into their recovery, um, it becomes difficult because, uh, you know, you may also be dealing with, you know, the person to whom the trauma was done. And, and they may or may not, and, and probably in most cases, don't want to deal with that. So it even makes it more difficult to unearth and and get some clarity, you know, as far as recovery. Right. That's very yeah. true. That's very true. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, sometimes I wonder also, you know, this um, trend to look into your past and, you know, your ancestors and um, mm -hmm. if that is really helping people to, you know, figure out who they really are, you know, as far as where they came from. And I, I think that's, I think it's a good trend for people to, you yeah. know, look at the holistic idea of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. I was just 
literally this morning you know, watching the PBS show about uh, I forget the gentleman's name who does uh, you know brings in stars and looks into their you know ancestry and and oh, yeah. you know it's 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 just you know when you see the lights kind of go off you know in the um, you know the person who he's uh, doing the work for you know as far as gaining an understanding of maybe why or you know how it is that they are who they are. Um, and based on that, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and then, you know, knowing that and, you know, knowing that there are, you know, um, areas where things weren't talked about or things weren't discussed, you know, that it's, um, it can make that discovery even more challenging, you know, when you have those kinds of obstacles. Um, so now, um, you, you mentioned, you know, the difficulty of, of trying to get Cheryl a bank account, you know, having been a felon. Were yeah. there any other other obstacles that you um, encountered that maybe people just don't recognize as being something, a uh, challenge for someone who um, has been um, in jail or in prison? Well, getting a job is very difficult. Okay. I mean, she used to be, yeah. um, when she was well for about 10 years, which – I thought that she was completely well. She wasn't totally. But she was functioning really well for, for a while. And she was an office manager, you know, handling accounts and books. And um, nobody was going to let her do that again after she'd had a family on the record. So those were her skills, and she, she wasn't allowed to do that. So all of a sudden she's plunged into basically physical labor, you know, at maybe a factory packing boxes, or which is – minimum wage jobs mm-hmm. and on a minimum wage job you know i know where she was in kentucky she couldn't afford an apartment on her own she you know she would have to have a roommate or a room or i mean the housing and the jobs were both very very difficult for her um and then accessing medical care you know we were mm-hmm. we were very grateful that there was what she called obamacare um, because that was the way she could get her antidepressants, and that was the way, you know, she could get her medical treatments, and um, she had a back problem. She, you know, she needed, you know, that kind of care. Um, and, and so that was the only way she could, she could receive that. So at least there was, there was that piece of it. Um, so yeah. affording anything, because you can't get that job, and you can't get, <laughs> you can't have a bank account, and you, it's just a, a domino effect of what your life consists of. You know, they're building blocks. And when you don't have even that foundation of the building block, it's very, very difficult. And I think people, they, they, need, they need help with that. Yeah, help yeah that. very much. So what do you think that we can do um, as a country, you know, as, as a in policy to um, help to, to make it easier for addicts to go into recovery. I mean, you mentioned some of the challenges and obstacles, but what are maybe have you thought about some possible sure. solutions or, or yeah, activities? Yeah, I, I think there are definite there are definite there are definite steps that that can and should be taken. Um, first of all, you know, um, people should be carrying Narcan, Naloxone. You know, the police should all have it. In many many places, they do. Um, 
schools should all have it. Um, that will save lives just immediately. Um, there should be – it should be easier to get treatment than it is to get the drugs. And right now that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Accessible treatment is, mm-hmm. is very difficult to get. You know, we've we've found now that, that um, medically assisted treatment like Suboxone um, helps helps people and protects them um, even if they do relapse from overdose, um, protects them from that. But it allows them, you know, to not have the cravings and to, you know, mm-hmm. not be sick, which is what they're really afraid of, is being dope sick because it's mm-hmm. like death. They, it's like dying. And so that that's mm-hmm. what keeps them, um, you know, finding the substances is that they're totally afraid, especially opioids, they're totally afraid of being mm-hmm. sick. Um, so that's yeah. part of it, to, to make, the, make the treatment much more accessible and affordable mm-hmm. and not expensive. And I, I think that, uh, you know, now, right now there's all of this uh, money coming in from, you know, the Sackler uh, settlement. And, you know, my hope is that that, that, that money is going to go for um, accessible treatment, making making yeah. it much more, much easier to find, affordable to find, or free. And that's where the money should go and not – and that's where arrest these people and put them in jail. That is not the answer, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Yeah, and I do hope some of that money goes toward that. I mean, <laughs> they contributed um, so much to the, the, the epidemic. Opiate. Yeah, it's just uh, crazy. Um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think are some um, myths about addiction uh, that keep – families from recognizing the danger. Um, yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I think one of the myths is that these are weak people that, you know, uh, can't, mm. can't function in our world and, you know, they don't deserve our help and, um, you know, just you have to let them go and tough love. And um, I think those are myths. I think tough love and letting somebody hit bottom is sometimes death. That's sometimes the case. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was a myth that certainly took hold for a long time. That um, you have to you do have to protect yourself when you're you're trying mm-hmm. to deal with somebody. But I think I think I think the crux of it is to meet people where where they are, and you know not insist you know don't talk to me if you're using drugs, you know not insist on that, but get them what they need. If they need clean needles, find them a place to get them. If they need if they yeah. need food, get them food. If they need shelter, help them find shelter. You know, to show them that you care no matter no matter what. That you still they're yeah. still the same person that you love. They're still your loved one. They're still they're not their addiction. They're still the same person. And to treat them more like you treat somebody who's diagnosed with diabetes and needs treatment. Yeah. You know, once we get to that point, I think that there's a lot more hope. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, it's really important to um, help the individuals who are struggling with that to recognize their self-worth and to separate their behaviors from their essence. You know, the idea of, I mean, what they do and not who they are. Kind of thing that it's um, right. but it, it, for for the individual struggling um, and the kinds of reactions they get 
from others in the world, I mean, it seems to, for them, reinforce that, you know, I'm nothing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't deserve yeah. X, Y, and Z because because of this. Um, so that, you know, that, that would be definitely a real challenge. Um, now, and, you know, I would say that to anybody who's mm-hmm. even writing to someone in prison is to reinforce mm-hmm. their worth. Oh yeah, yeah, very important. You and, and you did that in your letters to her, you know, and um, and you know that that was the one thing that struck me as I was going through and, and reading, you know, the, the various correspondence, you know, to Cheryl and from Cheryl, is that you really um, gave attention to uh, her value as a person, and and that that is something that. Um, that can be hard for someone who's incarcerated to to recognize. Yes, and I'm glad yeah. that I'm glad that came through. I'm glad that uh, yeah. you know. I think that is one thing that I I did at that time. That yeah. was right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did lots of things that were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so um, yeah. now. <laughs> When it comes to, and, and by the way, in this memoir is is a wonderful tribute um, to Cheryl and to Linda as well. You know, as far as um, helping the healing process along, and so I would think that your your children and grandchildren would would be able to benefit from that healing. I hope so. That's certainly my yeah. hope, and yeah. then that other people also can see, you know, the complexity of this and, and how to maybe address it in their own lives. Yeah. So now when it comes to loved ones um, who have a substance use um, issue, um, what is your um, feeling about uh, helping them remain sober? Well, I mean, What's your feeling on you know how much of it is can be um, assisted from from family and friends, and, and how much of it has to be internal for 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 the individual for for addiction to be held in check? Hmm, that's a big question. <laughs> a big <laughs> question, and uh-huh. you know I I think I think internal has the white flag has to be raised to know that they need help. And they have to want to. And they may, yeah. and I think the people, you know, um, who have the loved one who's, you know, has substance use disorder, I think they also have to realize there's no guarantees. You know, I've, I've heard people say, well, I tried to, I tried to help him, and then he just went back to the drugs. And they were discouraged, mm. and they stopped communicating with them. And, you know, they were frustrated. And I, I think just, being able to um, engage with with the person, like I said, wherever they are in their in their journey, and realize that you may not be able to stop them from using drugs. That may not happen, but you may be able to keep them alive long enough for them to raise their white flag, to find mm-hmm. help, and to to yeah. look for that. You know, there there's they have. They've done research where um, people that even go to uh, uh, needle exchanges for clean needles, that it it does lead to them looking for additional help because they see, mm. oh, these are non-judgmental yeah. people who want to help me. I must be worth 
something to be yeah, to yeah. be helped. And you know, it makes them feel that there is hope for them. And yeah, I, I think that yeah. any 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 piece of that that you can do to instill the help and let them know that you they're loved. I think that's the important yeah. piece. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're down to the the last few minutes here, Judy. Now, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, that um, you are uh, the co-founder of the Replacement Child Forum, and then also that a portion of the book's proceeds will be do donated to Magnolia New Beginnings, Inc. So can you tell us about those organizations and, and what is their mission? Sure. Well, the Replacement Child Forum, and it's Actually, the website is replacementchildforum.com. Um, is a uh, an organization that I developed with uh, two other co-founders who are replacement children, and we kind of found each other and realized that there are all of these identifying features that we have that are in common, and reaching out to other people that um, that relate to this. Um, so, really, the mission of that is awareness and to understand that that. Uh, um, replacement child condition is a real thing that uh, people have some very similar uh, features and um, suffer with it in several, you know, the same ways. Um, and uh, Magnolia New Beginning is an organization that I believe started in Massachusetts, and I contacted them really after uh, Cheryl passed away. Um, and I realized after talking to them for a while, um, their founder talked to me for an hour on the phone, um, picked up the phone and talked to me, which I appreciated so much. And I realized what, that what they do is help people like me that have someone who has substance use disorder and help them find resources and counseling and how to deal with this. And that spoke to me, you know, certainly personally, so that's why I wanted to support yeah. them. Great. So, in part, my last question in closing, um, do you have any advice or what advice might you have for some people who are listening, who are trying to help a loved one who's struggling, and um, maybe what actions that they can take? Um, be there. Be there for them where they are. Um, let them know that, that you haven't shunned them, that um, release the, the shame for them. I think that is the most important thing because it's the shame that that stops people from even, you know, being in touch with their families. And if they, yeah. if they don't have the support of their families or um, some kind of support like that, I think that that, that can have a, a detrimental effect. I don't think they yeah. can recover yeah. without that. Yeah, very important. Well, Judy, thank you for your time today. I, I enjoyed reading your book. It, um, it was an eye opener for for me, um, and I uh, and I I think I have gained you know a better understanding of of the the process of addiction, the challenges in in, in uh, you know coping with uh, not only with addiction but also after you know the, the and the recovery process I guess you know and the challenges there. So I, I really applaud your your effort and and bringing this to the forefront. So thank you for your time today. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me talk about it. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Okay. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Judy L. Mantel. We've been talking about her new memoir, White Flag. And, again, you can find out more about this as well as Judy's other book, Replacement Child, by visiting her website, which is judymandel.com. Again, that's J-U-D-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L.com. And, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.